Welcome to the Food Professor Podcast, Season 3, Episode 10. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm the Food Professor, Sylvain Chalabois. Well, Sylvain, we're back on the mic after a busy couple of weeks for you and for the yes. podcast. And for the podcast, our last episode with Robert Angelic, the largest farm owner in Canada, was our most popular ever. Though I have a feeling... Was it? Oh, that's great. Wow. I I do have a feeling that some of that activity may be a reflection of your popularity in the past couple of weeks. You've had a busy (laughs) couple of weeks, my friend. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I I thought Robert really uh, did a great job Mm -hmm. uh, giving us an idea of his business. Uh, He's a a leader. I mean, uh, he's an innovator, leader, and it was great to have him on for sure. Yeah, it was a great it was a great interview. And uh, speaking of interviews, our very special guest this week is a revolutionary farmer of a very different type. Josh Tetrick, CEO and co-founder of Eat Just Inc. Yeah, I, that that is absolutely going to be a fabulous interview. I mean, he's, I mean, his company was the first company to receive an approval, an official approval from a country to sell legally sell. Uh, cultured meat in Singapore. So that's, I'm looking forward to that conversation for sure. Well, it's interesting, right? We go from someone who owns a lot of farmland to someone who owns no farmland. (laughs) Exactly. Some of our listeners, they may know Just Egg, which uh, actually was on one of our segments last year. We tried it. Uh, So plant-based eggs. But this is this is a whole different thing. We'll talk about it after uh, we listen to Josh, but this is cellular. And the company name is uh, Eat Just Incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Um, all right, so let's get into it. So, uh, you, know, you know, I have a little bit of background in sociology and criminology, and I was so interested to see the reaction <laughs> and the back and forth that's been going on around uh, stealing food. You know, the, we've got now lawyers uh, trying to, you know, I don't know, chase some different ambulance, I guess, that says, hey, listen, uh, I'll, I'll, re- I'll represent you pro bono if you take food and you need it. What's going yeah. on here? Is, is stealing food... Have we got to a place where stealing food is somehow morally acceptable now? There, there is some confusion out there. And, uh, of course, it, it all started with my op-ed a couple of weeks ago on mm-hmm. store theft. And I actually was addressing organized crime, really. People going in, stealing thousands and thousands of dollars yeah. of food yeah. to be resold on the black market. And, yeah. uh, and it, it is a problem. Uh, when, when prices go up, it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, but there's also... Uh, an element of desperation pushing some people to steal some food. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I mean, I, that's a different, that's a different issue right there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, uh, right now there's so much blame given towards grocers that everyone wants to kind of punish grocers by stealing it. So going in and stealing for yourself and to your family is one thing, but to actually go on, on, on social media and encourage people to steal is something that I did not expect. Uh, I don't know how surprised you were, but I was not expecting that at all. And in fact, I became, um, the target, uh, being mm-hmm. someone, uh, who was sold to the devil, uh, grocers, because we did get a grant from the Western foundation six years ago. Uh, but we do not have a relationship with the Western Foundation at all now, and we don't have a relationship uh, financially or uh, with uh, with any of the grocers. So we're not we're not we weren't defending anything. We were just stating facts. So <laughs> I was a little say, bit surprised to see some yeah. of the reaction for sure. W- were you surprised? 
I was. I mean, on the one hand, um, I wonder, you know, I, my, let me reframe the question. How do you like Twitter now? Um, you know, I, I just think it's, it's a... Yeah, because there's a, Twitter and there's society, and they're two different right, things. Yeah. Right, and I, and I think there's a lot of games going on, and I, I don't really know or understand the full breadth of it, but um, I was surprised by the, uh, the energy. What did you have, like six million views or some crazy amount on some of these tweets and and i just have well, to think the, the that tweet that i was basically challenging the one person who was encouraging others to steal mm. um was viewed by almost 10 million people so uh and, 10 and, million people or 10 million yeah. somethings i mean 10 million robots or whatever but um well, th this is the other thing, Michael, that mm. I've noticed in recent uh, in recent weeks. Every time mm -hmm. I tweet, within seconds, within seconds, there's a comment. Yeah. Bots, that's uh, bots coming right? from a bot, and yeah. uh, and that influences how people perceive the tweet itself. So, it, there's yeah. something going on with Twitter, uh, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, that that concerns me quite a bit. So, uh, so I'm being a little bit more careful right mm -hmm. now when I tweet. I actually uh, don't allow comments to be made within the hour, for example. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. Yeah, because okay. I'm, I'm very careful just to prevent mm. some of the bots to actually contaminate the message right. that I'm trying to convey. And then after just, that, things calm down. And then, so, so to speak, just slow the roll yeah. of, that inf of that misinformation or disinformation. Now, would you ever consider leaving Twitter? Do you, I mean, you've always found it a very valuable communication tool and, and uh, feedback tool as well. Would you, what are you thinking? Well, if there's something that uh, can replace Twitter, I would certainly consider it. But right now there's nothing. And so mm -hmm. uh, am I, I mean, I've thought of pausing for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're on Twitter too, but you see all the nastiness and the ugliness. Yeah. I actually think More that now. the last few months, it just got, it just got worse. More now. I see a lot, a lot worse now. Anyway, I think we're not alone in wondering if there's another choice behind or besides but, one. But what I, does it do? What, what but does just it do for the for record, you? I mean, the yeah, one thing that really bothered me with the campaign mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. people can call me names. And but the one thing that really bothered me as an academic is this uh, accusation of being in conflict. Mm. And and so as an academic, of course, uh, when people suggest or imply that I'm in conflict, you have to go back to our conflict of interest policy at Dal. And I did contacted legal, uh, mm -hmm. our legal mm -hmm. office, uh, and consulted with them to just to make sure, make sure that I wasn't in conflict. And according to them, based on the information that they have, I was never in conflict at all. So I just wanted to, mm -hmm. and I did actually send out a statement over the weekend uh, about mm -hmm. that. And, uh, and I, I didn't get any reaction. So that's a, that's a good sign. Things have calmed down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's it, it's good to have uh, dialogue, but uh, a bit too much dialogue is uh, yeah. It's a bit. Uh, it was a bit hot, so to speak. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to something uh, a little more fun, and let's say uh, I was here's something I was shocked, literally shocked that Canada has become the largest croissant exporter in the world. You didn't um, know that. I had no idea. I mean, what are we? I, I, I guess you love if croissant. I, you love I croissant. Love, I, I, I love croissant. I mean, I, I just did you know had, that croissants were from Austria? I, I did not. You would know. You you worked there, right? You were visiting in academic in Austria. But what's going on? Like, when did we become a an, a croissant exporter? Like, and how do you export croissants? So, like, talk talk about this a bit. This is this is a problem in dairy right now, and and so a lot of people are are 
are just blaming grocers because it's the easiest thing to do when when you look at high prices at retail but there are lots of factors contributing to higher prices and one of them one factor that may actually be contributing to higher butter prices because butter prices have gone up 17 to 20 percent in the last year is this demand for croissant can croissant overseas we're exporting for <laughs> get this so we were number two for about yeah. four years. We yeah. caught up to Germany, and we're now number one, and we're exporting. Uh, we're exporting for about three billion dollars worth of croissant. What do you Which, need when you make croissants? Well, you need a lot of butter. That's a, so we must be exporting a lot of butter along with these a croissants. A lot of right? butter, and so so there's that pressure domestically to support. To support manufacturers making croissant for overseas markets, but here's the here's the yeah this is a challenge, Michael. Mm-hmm. We, we're subsidizing, we're partially subsidizing the dairy industry. Our dairy industry is highly protected. I have nothing against seeing uh, uh, Canada play a leading role in the croissant market around the world. It's actually great, but sure. are we doing like two three things at once that we shouldn't? I mean, mm. we're protecting, s- subsidizing. And exporting. That's kind of weird. Yeah. I'd never put those three things together uh, heretofore. So, well, the, he, the, prob- the problem is that some, some mm. people, some manufacturers in Canada, believe that because of the pressure created by more exports, it's pushing prices domestically higher. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, we are a croissant nation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't think that France, I mean, France, they actually make a lot of croissant, but they keep it all for themselves. That's oh, the problem. Okay. You have to fly uh, over to actually get it. It's so interesting. <laughs> uh, les croissants, les croissants, les good croissants. Uh, <laughs> um, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about alcohol. So the CCSA came out with some new alcohol guidelines that made the news. You commented. Uh, in and around just your expertise around it. But it's, yeah. it seems fairly clear that um, in one way, shape, or form, can, uh, cancer, or, or sorry, in one way, shape, or form, alcohol is a contributor to, uh, to not such great things, but it's at how much you drink. And I guess the study was about zero is better for you, uh, but then you get into quality of life. What's your, what's your read of what's going on? And I guess this all could go, come down to is there a new warning label on alcohol? I guess this is where the rubber hits the road, or the what, or the grapes hit the hit the hit the road, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote an op-ed. So first of all, I read the report. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you looked at it, but I I, I looked at it, mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of I wasn't overly receptive, and 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 uh, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of the Cain Center for Disease and Addiction. Uh, mm. It's it's mostly funded by Health Canada, and and you, when you look at some of the narrative coming out of the of the center, it's very it's very anti-alcohol, and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it, there, there there seems to be some risk aversion there, mm. and so. And when I heard about labels on bottles, I thought, well, what's going on here? So I actually read the report, mm-hmm. went online, looked at the literature around alcohol consumption and cancer. And uh, I got to tell you, I was a little bit overwhelmed because uh, mm. it's not my area of expertise. So I got educated uh, with the science that it's been published over the last five years. And it's pretty, 
I mean, the evidence is pretty clear. Uh, mm. it, it is a high risk for seven types of cancer, for sure. Mm. There's no mm. doubt anymore. I mean, it's there. But how do we deal with that, I think? And, and I think the report is, is very much about an invitation for Canadians to think about their relationship with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I don't think that labeling is the key here or a solution, but I actually do think that the uh, the beverage, the alcoholic beverage industry that we have in Canada have, has done wonders for Canadians, have provided some great products, and will continue to do so. Uh, but at the same time, I do know that the entire industry is very much supportive of moderate responsible drinking as well and so i do believe that over time we'll see you know more innovation more stuff happening as we try to figure out because the 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 guidelines that were presented in 2011 it's 15 drinks a week for men 10 drinks for women like i don't know what your Mm. alcohol consumption is michael but uh Drinking 15 mm. drinks a week is is a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Some weeks it feels like not enough, but most weeks, yeah. That, <laughs> so, that, so, but for, yeah. to go from 15 to maximum of two is a huge jump. So I, mm-hmm. I suspect that the report will be received with a lot of criticism. Uh, the president, the CEO of the center did reach out to me on the weekend. Mm. I was glad. He was actually pleased. He knew, he knew that I'm not a big fan of his center, but he, he was pleased with the balance op-ed I wrote about the report. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do also recognize that there are gaps in the report. One, they, they, they really treated science as a buff, like a buffet. They kind of mm. took, took a few studies yeah. here and there, you, but I did actually yeah. find studies that weren't even in the report too. So the other you've spoke, thing... You've spoken of that before, the idea that pick and choose science as a buffet. Uh, we've seen that before, right? You've, yeah, you've, we've seen that before, that before to support a narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the other thing, of course, is, um, is, uh, is, is how we socialize alcohol. I mean, there are, they, we have events, we have family gatherings. I mean, alcohol is, is always at the center of reunions and meetings and, and so games. Uh, and so sure. those, those are things that I think need to be considered, and they didn't consider any of that in the report. If you read the report, people just drink. There's no purpose. There's no social purpose to drinking, right. which is really not the case. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the benefits, so to speak, of socialization, particularly after what we've just been through with the COVID era, uh, are not, not insubstantial, right? Mental health. I, I, exactly. So, so that guy said it's, it's important to have a balance conversation about this and not just go full speed ahead with a risk averse agenda and put labels on everything Mm. and telling everyone to protect themselves from the bottle i don't think that's the solution really right yeah all right well let's uh let's talk about a whole other different type of thing with our guest josh tetrick josh welcome to the food professor podcast how are you doing this morning i'm doing good red talk about some meat in the morning yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hey, good morning, Josh. <laughs> good morning. Well, and uh, speaking of which, this is, uh, I think we're finding you in the West Coast, correct? So this is pretty early morning for you. Where are you based? Our headquarters is in the East Bay in Alameda. So we have a, um, a production facility there, um, our R&D labs, and I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I'm taking this call from Berkeley about 40 minutes away from there. 
All right. Now, is this where you're from originally, is, or is this where you you found uh, the science to do all this work and the and the people? What uh, give us a bit of background on that? Originally from uh, meat country in Alabama, so I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to went to school uh, all around the place. Finally graduated from uh, from Cornell. Spent some time in, in Africa, and, and then uh, started the company out here in California. And and uh, I guess am I correct in saying that uh, California was the place for you to start a, a company like this? Is it didn't it wasn't happenstance? Give us a bit of insight to that. My uh, my ex girlfriend Jill lived in L.A. and I had uh, about three thousand dollars in my bank account, <laughs> and uh, she told me she told me I could hang out on her couch while I figured my life out. Uh, so I spent about six months basically preventing her from dating anyone else because I was in there all the time. And then uh, I raised a little bit of money and uh, moved up to Northern California because. Um, in, in books and movies, you hear about people moving north of California when they raise a little bit of money to start a company. So that's how I yeah. got it. Well, that's great. So you moved for for love, innovation, and funding. It's a it's a <laughs> <laughs> the nice trifecta. A nice right. trifecta. And, and redwoods by the coast, and yeah, yeah, all yeah. The weather and all that. All the beautiful nature up here that doesn't hurt. Well, let's um, let's talk about the company you founded and talk about the genesis of the company, where the idea, the background, scope, scale, product. Yeah, the name of the company is Eat Just, and we do two things. Uh, we make eggs. That was the first thing we uh, we started doing. And then the second thing is we make meat. And the whole purpose of uh, – uh, well, the egg is under a brand called Just Egg. It's about, uh, in about 2 million households today and helped by uh, the whole avian flu deal, which we don't think is a, a temporary thing. Yeah. And we, then, we tried that, by the way. Uh, Andrew yeah, absolutely. Uh, was, Andrew was kind enough, and your team was kind enough to send us some samples. So we did a what we called a trying stuff episode with your uh, your foldable product, which I love in a in a uh, in an English muffin, and then the uh, the liquid, which I still That's use right. today. Yeah, awesome. it was delicious. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Yeah, and then good meat is not plant based; it's actually real animal flesh without the need to slaughter an animal. It's called cultivated meat. And today, we're the only company in the world that sells it. We sell it in uh, in Singapore, but the purpose of of both those things is to try to figure out a way to to live in a world where we're not using half the planet to plant soy and corn to feed the animals we eat, where we're not using more emissions and all the transportation sources combined, where we're not harming animals in our body just because you know we like good taste in food. So we're trying different approaches uh, to uh, to make that happen. Now, before we get into uh, talking about the plant-based eggs first and then the, the cultivated meat. Just for the listeners maybe who haven't, uh, don't know about it or haven't tried it, talk about the uh, plant-based eggs and what's that made of and a little bit about the process, just to get, make sure everybody knows what we're talking about here. Yeah, so everyone knows about an egg. Just imagine you crack an egg in the morning, um, sizzling in the pan there. It takes about 45 seconds or so to scramble or as uh, we we use gel. Um and you can make nice scrambled eggs or an omelet, and it tastes fatty and has a delicate mouthfeel and um, high in protein. Um, and our job was to try to figure out if we could do it better with a plant. Um, so we know that there are tens of thousands of species of plants all over the world, right? We only use a handful, just kind of think sowing corn and beans, but there are tens of thousands of them. So we thought, well, what if there's one that could make a better version of an egg? 
And when we say better, we mean better in every respect. Better taste, um, taste, texture, mouthfeel, flavor profile, better health, less saturated fat, free of cholesterol, um, higher quality proteins, vitamins, minerals, um, lower cost, uh, better shelf life, all of it. I'm sure there's certain things about better we haven't even thought about yet. So we want to make it better. And we spent a few years searching, and then we found a bean called the mung bean that has a storage protein in it that actually does scramble like an egg. So our process is we source the bean. It's a mung bean. It's this green-looking bean. We then mill that bean into a flour, so in the same way that you'd mill anything into flour. We then take that flour and we spin it fast. And when you spin it really fast, it separates the protein from the fat and the fiber and the starch because of the forces of gravity. And then we take that protein um, and bottle it up. And we you pour it in the pan, you make an egg, or we bake it and you make the folder product. And today we're in about uh, 2 million households everywhere from uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Walmarts to um, you know, your local natural grocery store yeah, in, uh, here in Canada. Yeah. So in, here in Canada. Canada. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's just that. That's great. Uh, now, now at this point, we're in 2023, we've been talking about the plant-based market for a while. Uh, how do you see the plant-based market like right now in, in the U S Canada, around the Western world, uh, down sideways growth contraction? How, how do you see it right now? Overall, um, from a global perspective, it's growing quickly. Um, and when you look at the plant-based market, you really got to you know, drill in to what you're talking about because you have some categories that are a little bit more mature, like plant-based milks that are still growing pretty fast. Um, you have a variety of new plant-based meats that continue to come on the market. You have stuff like what we do, plant-based eggs that are really new. So plant-based eggs weren't around you know, 10 years ago, um, we're sort of the first one that did it. And that that's actually growing the fastest of all categories. So overall global growth is, uh, is strong. One of the reasons we'll get to it, why we do cultivated meat is we think that, um, for the plant-based meat category, um, we're going to be able to get a lot of people to move from eating conventional meat to plant-based meat, but not enough people. So we think we need yeah. to figure out a way to to get even more to to eat in a way that we think makes sense, and that's why we eventually did uh, did the real meat thing. Now, my understanding: so you got approval out of Singapore, you're growing that market there. What about the U.S.? My understanding, reading about your company, is that you've applied to get regulatory approval in the U.S. Correct? We have, yes. So in the United States, so in Singapore, you're right. We got. Approval in late 2020, we've been selling ever since. Um, and Singapore uh, is the only country in the world that has ever approved cultivated meat for sale, and we're the only company that's ever sold anything. We sell in a butcher shop today. We've sold in street vendors and um, high-end restaurants. We've delivered with a delivery app called Food Panda. Uh, in the United States, it's regulated by both the FDA and the USDA, so it's jointly regulated. So and upcycle, upcycle got the approval from the FDA now in the fall. The, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah, in order to sell it in the U.S., you need to get both approval from the U.S. 
uh, and the USDA. Um, and we expect, uh, expect to be selling this year. That's cool. 2023 this year. Wow. That's great. <laughs> that's quick. That's quick. My guess is that Canada will be influenced by what's going on in the U S for sure. Eventually. Um, yeah, I hope so. And vice versa, <laughs> vice, versa uh, vice versa on a lot of things too. Um, yeah. yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, the, well, I'm sure we'll get into cultivated meat a little bit more, but yeah, you should think about it in phases where, you know, Singapore sort of, sort of showed this wasn't science fiction. Um, it actually could be on people's plates and people can pay for it. And obviously being here in the U S so that'll be a big deal. Um, but then we got to really scale it up. You know, we're not in 23, we're not going to be selling tens of millions of pounds. We've got to build the infrastructure, these big giant stainless steel vessels, those things ultimately 70 feet high. Yeah. You can make chicken, beef, pork at the scale necessary to be a national distribution, you know, from Toronto, Montreal to Los Angeles to Birmingham. Uh, that's really what we're, we're pushing for. Wow. So we, we started talking about this cultivated meat, but let's take a couple of steps back because um, I'm pretty sure a lot of folks listening may, may have heard of it, but I'm like you were articulating how the, uh, your plant-based eggs were made. Tell us about how this is made. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm trying to picture it in my head and I'm, I am struggling with just, you know, not the science cause I'm not a scientist, but just even the process. So, you know, take us through what, what the, the, the understanding we need to have about what, what are you talking about? What does this thing look like? And I think I've, I think I understand what it looks like at the end of the process, which is, you yeah. know, it looks like what a substitute, I don't know if you'd even call it that, but I don't understand how you get there. Tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, let's start off with conventional meat quickly. Let's use chickens as an example. So 80 billion animals are slaughtered yearly. 70 billion of those are chickens. Um, and most chickens are in a warehouse setting at tens of thousands on the floor. They live to about 45 days. They're slaughtered and chopped up into chicken breasts, chicken thighs, chicken wings, processed into chicken nuggets. What we do is give folks what they want at the end of all that good tasting tender chicken but in a way that uses significantly less resources that causes significantly less harm is a lot safer so we start with a cell and you can get that cell from a cell bank you can get it from an egg you can get it from a fresh piece of meat you get it from a biopsy of an animal. So just think you start with a cell. The second step is you've got to feed the cell. So in the same way that a chicken would consume soy and corn, and the constituents in the soy and corn, so think amino acids and sugars and salts and fats, right? just the stuff that makes up soy and corn, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would absorb into the chicken's body, and that would enable muscle and fat to be built on the chicken's bones. Well, our cell is consuming also... Um, amino acids, sugars, and salts. So that's called developing the cell, developing the cell line. Um, then we put that developed cell line, sort of that process of how the cell line um, matches with the correct feed in a stainless steel vessel that creates conditions that enable the cells to grow. All, all I mean by creates conditions for the cell to grow is an op optimal temperature around 70 so degrees, a sterile environment. And over the course of about 14 days, the cell is doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. 
and literally making meat without mm-hmm. the need to slaughter, without the need to use all that land and all that water. By the way, about half our planet today is dedicated just to planting soy and corn to feed the animals we eat. So mm-hmm. after 14 days, we take the meat out. And when I say take the meat out, just imagine raw, unformed chicken. Um, and then we can take that raw, unformed chicken and we can make chicken nuggets out of it or chicken strips. We can't do bones yet, um, but we can do do a lot. And uh, we currently sell chicken. We're planning to launch beef uh, sometime uh, before the uh, before the the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's from sell to finished product, not conventionally produced, but cultivated. So, what about a lot of people are listening in? Probably they're wondering, oh, uh, does this taste the same? What about the texture? What do you say to that? Is it similar to real chicken? Yeah, folks, the most common reaction when people, you know, roll up to a to our, a butcher shop that sells it is this tastes like chicken. Am I missing something? Mm-hmm. And our answer is you're not missing anything. It tastes like chicken because, and this is a really important point for the audience. Be- because it, it is chicken. It's literally chicken. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's yeah. not trying to be chicken. Mm-hmm. It just is chicken. And, you know, our chicken today or our beef today. There are all sorts of ways that um, you know companies, farmers have grown animals. Right, there are different kinds of beef. There are different kinds of processes, you know, from free range to you know more industrialization of the meat. Um, it's still meat, and you know some ways are better than others. And we think ultimately, people. I guess there are a few sort of core truths that um, underlie why we do this in the first place. Yeah. So the, the first and the most important is, listen, like we keep eating meat in the way that we are right now. We're just going to have a planet that's literally a farm for animals and to plant feed for animals, right? So we've mm-hmm. got to figure out a way to solve it. The problem is, and the second truth is, people love meat. And you're only going to get a you know percentage of people to be vegans or vegetarians. Um, or plant-based, of course. Or, or plant-based. You're yeah. going to get some. Um, so that sort of leads us to the conclusion of, all right, given that, what if we meet people where they are and we figure out a way to make meat that people do crave, but make it in a way that's just not so harmful. And that's mm-hmm. what we So in terms of, because when I talk to farmers, when I talk to people in Canada, I travel across the country, uh, Michael travels as well, uh, I do talk about uh, cultivated mm-hmm, meat, and, mm-hmm. and the reaction that I get all the time, well, I'm not interested in, ta- in tasting fake meat. And I say, like you said, J- uh, Josh, uh, it's not fake meat. It's chicken. <laughs> it's just made differently. But you can see there, is, there needs to be some sort of paradigm shift for sure how, with, with how people perceive that new technology. It's, it's going to be a bit of a departure for sure. Yeah, I think a few things that, you know, I think help are one is, you know, we're not doing this because we're really concerned about pasture raised chicken. That's not why we're doing this. 99% of the chicken, beef, pork, et cetera, is one, what one might call factory farmed, right? So that, that's the bigger issue, not pasture raised stuff. Um, and if you look at look at a factory farmed or industrialized chicken, I mean, it looks nothing like the chicken from a hundred years ago. 
breast heavy, much whiter feathers, lives to 45 days. It's not maybe what you might call natural in any uh, respect other than the fact you would call the bird a, a chicken. So we should question what we think is natural day, you know, first. Mm. And then this, the second is um, the idea of, of making chicken in this way is very strange, what I just described. Yeah, and right. it's important for that we don't pretend that it's it sounds normal to everyone the first time they hear it. It sounds kind of weird. A lot of things sounded weird in the beginning, and then you get used to them, <laughs> and then they're and then they're you know less weird. You know, if someone told me there's a full self driving car, you know, ten years ago, that would sound pretty bizarre to me. Mm. Um, but people get used to things, and the most effective thing that we can do is be really open about the process, not try to hide the ball about it, and let people try it. And what we find often is someone will come into a butcher shop, for example, and be like, this sounds really strange. Hmm. They'll, sit down, <laughs> sit down, they'll sit down with their girlfriend, they'll sit down with their boyfriend, have a couple bites, and be like, all right, this tastes chicken. All right, what are we doing for the rest of the day? <laughs> like they get over it pretty quick, and we yeah. like that. Listen, let's talk a little bit about marketing, because uh, I've been looking at your uh, website and your announcements. Uh, you're doing a lot of things, uh, and a lot of it is very clever, um, like the avian flu campaign that you're running right now. I mean, it's it's we all know that the avian flu is really impacting uh, the entire North American poultry uh, industry. You took advantage of that by basically saying, you know what, our chicken doesn't, well, our products doesn't get sick. Uh, what's the reaction to your campaign so far? You know, avian flu, before I say about the campaign, so the, the leading cause of zoonotic disease, which just means diseases that could jump from a non-human animal like a chicken to a human animal, to human. Yep. is the industrialization of animal production. Um, COVID-19 is a is zoonotic disease. So um, avian flu is a zoonotic disease. Um, and, you know, when you, when, you, when you put a whole – if we put, you know, m me, you, 10 other people in an elevator for a couple weeks, someone's probably going to get sick unless you, you know, provide us a lot of snacks with lots of antibiotics. And even then someone might get sick and, and then the whole elevator is going to be sick. So you know, that's the way it is with the current system of, of animal production office. There's just a higher risk. So our point in the campaign is just say, you know, that's not the deal with mung beans. Um, you know, mung beans don't have a respiratory system that can pass uh, the flu uh, on to their other mung bean friends. Um, and it's one of the many reasons why people should think about uh, trying a, a plant-based version of a chicken egg, in addition to really important health reasons like the, uh, the lower saturated fat content and uh, the fact that it's uh, uh, free of cholesterol. You've also actually signed on uh, some celebrities, uh, Lindsay Vaughn, uh, the Olympic skier. Uh, I believe she became an ambassador and investor last year. It was announced on your website. Uh, your company is also involved with Serena Williams, uh, the tennis player, and Jake uh, Gallenwall, uh, the actor, for, for other campaigns. So how, how do these connections work? How do you make them happen? We um, we could, we we've got some like advisors who are 
you know, hang out with fancy people. Um, not, <laughs> and we, uh, yeah, so they, they help to connect us. Sometimes investors help to connect. Sometimes we connect to these folks through their, um, their, uh, their talent agency. And, you know, for us, it's, you know, changing both for cultivated meat and plant-based eggs. Again, it's important for us to remember not everyone knows what the hell those two things are. Right. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to recognize and put yourself in people's um, shoes and and realize that, you know, folks like Serena Williams, um, the greatest female tennis player of all time and Lindsey Vaughn, first ever women's uh, downhill gold medalist, they have an impact on people. People are watching and listening to how they're thinking about their own lives and it's having an impact. So it's just a part of our, you know, part of the deal to try to open up more eyes to to the work that we're doing. That's great. Listen, I, I, we're almost we're out of time. Unfortunately, uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate, uh, but uh, we, we're gonna have to really end our conversation here. How can we learn more about your company? Uh, for for people listening in who want to know more about your products, uh, your company, things that are happening uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, how do we can uh, how can we find more information about uh, about your business? Yeah, for Just Egg, you go to ju.st if you're into the whole plant-based egg thing. If you're into making meat without the need to slaughter an animal, you go to goodmeat.co. Well, listen, Josh Detrick, uh, CEO of Eat Just, thank you so much for joining us today in beautiful from beautiful California where it's very early. Uh, I hope you had coffee already, or if not, I hope you will have coffee soon. But I want to thank you very much on behalf of the Food Professor Podcast. Uh, uh, joining us was a thrill, so thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. So, so then I was, I, of course, struck by the contrast between talking to the world's or Canada's largest farmer and and uh, and Josh, who's got such a vision for a very different oh, way. Oh yeah. I mean, we talked about. I remember we talked about this before. I didn't. I didn't connect the dots that it was just eat when we talked about Singapore wanting to be food independent, and as a small island, they're a leader in things such as this. Do you do you see a regulatory framework where this could be on Canadian shelves in? in within the decade what do you how do you how do you think about that i don't know i mean the the canadian landscape is a little bit different uh it's not we're no singapore and we're Mm. no we're we're not the united states uh but what i do know what do you mean by that what do you mean i I get the singapore but what do you mean we're not the united states i I would think you know the the cattlemen and the agriculture lobby is pretty strong there but what do you what do you think well, I mean, you, you have to think of supply management, all the boards. I mean, uh, they oh, I have see. a lot of say. When when you look at the animal protein market in Canada, our regime is very different than the U.S. I got um, it. Okay. You know? Mm-hmm. So do you think that we're going to be approving cultured chicken in Canada anytime soon? We're talking, Our- we're talking about poultry here and poultry yeah. supply managed in Canada. Hard to imagine. <laughs> Hard to imagine. I mean, it's it's interesting because, uh, uh, as well, we have we haven't talked about it on this show in a little bit, but it's kind of very present. Is 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 the challenges the poultry industry is going through now? Even the egg industry, there's a shortage of eggs. With the avian places, flu. With the avian flu, and and um, we mentioned it briefly, but they run a, ran a campaign about you know no avian flu here. Basically, they all come from mung beans. So I thought That's that right. was I thought that was uh, opportunistic and and clever. But it also kind of brings home a little bit of a point around, uh, 
it's a bit of a moment for their plant-based product, but also just so interesting around their and and, and their frankly, the avian flu. That's why I asked Josh about mm, the avian mm-hmm. flu campaign because I'm not sure it would resonate the same way in Canada. Because when you look at the data mm. in Canada related to the avian flu versus the U.S., we actually are doing much better in Canada. And mm. let's face it, mm. it's because of how vertically coordinated our industry is. The uh, egg industry in Canada is very strong yeah. because of that very strong vertical coordination that we have. Well, we talked about about this with Market Hudson uh, right. a few months ago. I mean, sh- the system that we have is very strong due due to supply management in our quota system. Yeah, and 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 being great farmers behind the behind the system as well. So interesting. Uh, well, let's uh, let's wrap up with a couple of things. First of all, I, the, there was an announcement made about the code of conduct, but we really didn't get much insight no. into it. That's is that fair? And now, now if I Think about what the announcement was. It's basically, we're going to have one by the end of the year. Have I got that right? What, what was your read of this? Kind Wait. of. Well, they have a year to set it up. Uh, okay. I don't know how you felt about, uh, about, the, um, about the announcement. Uh, I, I think it's what I saw. Uh, what I saw was a lot of wait and see sort of mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. People were saying, well, let's, let's see about compliance let's see how things work and i don't know do you feel do you feel that we're going in in the right direction here i i think so i mean everyone seems to be um growing in the same direction so to speak uh, yeah. but I, I i don't feel very informed about it yet yeah um so it does seem like it's moving forward whatever that means i think it's going to be a topic for us to discuss both in this season and the next Really, it's going to be a pretty big topic. So I don't. I, I think don't the most to... important thing is that there's dialogue between uh, yeah. retailers and and processors, and and that dialogue continues, and that's what I'm seeing so far. So, All right. well, that's that's good. Uh, speaking of dialogue, our uh, elected officials are getting back on the floor. Parliament's back next week, and um, we wanted to talk, or I wanted to ask you about Bill C two fifty two, which is food advertising yes. to children. What uh, is is that bill? That <laughs> bill's been in the works for many many years is is this a voting time what's the status of uh, discussions on the bill well it's actually there's uh, there there are going to be some meetings uh, held by the uh, uh, standing committee on health uh, mm-hmm. over the next uh, little while for the next session and so we didn't hear much about bill c252 my expectation i will hear more about it it's really much about marketing to children Uh, marketing food to children Mm -hmm. and uh, Quebec has actually done a very good job over the years uh, managing that space and uh, and now we have a a code across the country which will be implemented I believe in the summer so all Mm -hmm. that work was done in order to protect children Mm -hmm. and uh, and now the bill itself uh, that was presented by a, a private member uh, is likely going to uh, make things a little bit more complicated and, frankly, I think more costly. So there's going to be mm. – I think there's going to be a lot of debate around – I think everyone agrees that we need to protect our children. Mm-hmm. It's how we do it. And I yeah. think there's going to be a lot of discussion about that. You know, I always think back to my growing up and, and uh, all the cartoons that were basically created to sell cereal to oh, kids in yeah. the morning, right? I mean, when you think about 
uh, and you look at it now, it's almost sh a little shocking, really. Yeah. Um, you know, when oh, yeah. the, the amount of sugar you in, you're inhaling. Well, you remember, we were all after that toy in the <laughs> cereal box. Huh? I know, man. I, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> nice when surprise, you, yeah. It's crazy when you think about it. Now, we haven't talked about, what we haven't talked about lately is work you're doing in the lab. So what's, uh, what's on the... Uh, What's on the slab, so to speak, the research slab for the lab? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've been uh, I've been focusing on my book. I've been writing every day. Uh, mm -hmm. My next Rem book. Remind us about that. Yeah, it's it's on the geopolitics of uh, of food. Essentially, oh, it's actually probably the easiest book I will ever write. It's our it's my eighth <laughs> book. Well, because. Yeah. I mean, we, Ukraine, Russia, India, yeah. uh, we're going to have uh, Shamnam uh, Weber from, from the um, uh, Tea and Herbal Association of Canada uh, coming on yeah. in a couple of weeks. And uh, I mean, she's very, very much in the middle of, of the mm -hmm. geopolitics of food. And so it's a very easy topic to write about. So I'm working mm -hmm. on that. But we are going to be releasing some... Uh, some reports over the next little while. Our next one is going to be on the cashless economy, how oh, it's impacting people at the grocery store. And and so mm. we're, we're looking at privacy issues. We're looking at cleanliness and public health. Mm. Um, we're looking at, at uh, even some people think it, you know, going cashless may be discriminatory because some people <laughs> use cash only. Well, there's, uh, and I know something of this because there was some, um, a lot of discussion around a couple of years ago, the Amazon Go stores, you know, the, yeah. the shop at uh, Just Walk Out technology, and, and they were completely cashless. And, uh, you know, there's there's like a million unbanked Canadians, and, yeah. and there's a lot of people. And so in New York State, they passed some laws that you have to accept cash. Um, so they started to try and legislate. Now, I just got back from New York City, spent a week in New York at a big conference, and many, many stores are cashless. Um, not grocery stores necessarily, but... Uh, but even Amazon Go is accepting cash. Oh, by the way, I should mention uh, to the listeners, if you're hearing uh, the sound of my voice and it sounds a little different, I'm, uh, I'm on tour a little bit here. I'm in uh, Aloha. I am in the wonderful uh, city. In or, Maui. In wonderful yes. Maui for a, a board meeting for an association that I sit on, a retail technologist. And uh, it's a bit of a hardship, you know, got to come to Maui. Uh, serve right. on a board, you know, you must, uh, you must serve. So, <laughs> so that, that is actually. Tough gig, tough gig. It's uh, you know it's it, for the listeners. We usually record this at, uh, in the morning, and of course here it's five hours earlier. So I'm up bright yeah. and bright, and uh, it's not bright actually. Uh, very no, early. I can <laughs> barely see you. <laughs> <laughs> and and that is the sound of uh, the ocean waves to uh, lull or at least to calm everyone as we as we wrap up this episode. That's right. We'll be able to talk about that next episode, the cashless economy at the grocery store. That'll be published by then. Uh, probably, uh, I'm still, we're still working with the data. So, uh, okay. but I, so maybe, I'm maybe hoping not. that we'll be able to do that. Yeah. And right. you'll be back from Maui or you, I think you're going to be somewhere else, aren't you? Uh, I will be back, but then quickly off to LA. So it's a right. lot of favorite of traveling, but, uh, always here for the listeners, always here for you. Uh, appreciate you, my friend. And, uh, listen, for those of uh, you who are listening to the podcast, thanks so much for listening. Uh, again, the listenership continues to grow. So be sure and tell your friends and colleagues in the grocery food service and uh, retail industry, retail food industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer growth consultant and a podcaster. And you are? I'm the food professor, Sylvain Chalabois. And Michael, I wish you all the best and safe travels to you. All right. Well, thank you, my friend. I look forward to touching base again soon. And uh, everybody, safe travels to uh, all the listeners. <laughs>